Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. On this show, Samaya Keynes speaks to the leading economist Richard Baldwin about whether the anger over globalisation is justified. It looks like trade deals like the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership are dead. What does that mean? Globalisation is a problem. I, I think we have to admit that. The rage is rational. It's the reaction which is not rational. It's as, as if the economy has a broken leg and they're trying to treat it with antibiotics. And also why Japan's businessmen are hanging up their golf clubs. Participation in golf has dropped by over 40% since its highs in the 1990s. But first, this week, Jacob Zuma, South Africa's president, has survived a revolt in his ruling party, the African National Congress. Meanwhile, South Africa's economy is limping along. Rating agencies are talking of downgrading the country's debt, already just one notch above junk. But here's Pravin Goran, the finance minister, speaking last month. Growth and inclusivity of growth is the central issue facing South Africa. To get that going, we need investment. To get investment going, we need confidence. To get confidence going, we need the right level of cohesion and collaboration and stability. With me now is our Africa editor, Jonathan Rosenthal. Jonathan, Mr Gordon there was talking about the right level of cohesion, collaboration and stability. Is any of that in sight? Not really. There are still huge fights going on within the ruling party, within the, uh, the African National Congress. President Zuma, who faces uh, 783 charges of uh, fraud, corruption and racketeering. 783? 783, indeed. Is really sort of in the middle of this, this absolute factional battle. So actually, the inner circle of government is, is not focusing on running the economy. They're really focusing on, on either trying to keep Mr. Zuma in or get him out. One step down, you've got uh, labor unions who have been incredibly militant and two years ago brought the economy almost to a halt when they shut down the platinum industry. The big efforts right now are to try to get that sort of social cohesion. They're trying to get labor unions on board to agree to what would seem to us quite modest reforms, agreeing to, for instance, secret ballots before they can go on strike. That remains in the balance. But with Mr. Zuma's own future under such a cloud, is there any end in sight to the political uncertainty? What's really happening is that the cabinet and the ANC are not focusing on running the country. They're really torn apart between you know, those who are trying to get Mr. Zuma out and those who are trying to protect him. And the sorts of structural reforms that really should be taking place, the kind of social cohesion that Mr. Gordon was talking about, are not really being worked on. So one example would be trying to get some stability in the workplace. The labor unions are militant, but even that seems to be drifting and not really being driven through as clear policy. So can we put some numbers on it? I mean, what, what sort of growth rates are we likely to see in South Africa over the next year, year, two years? Well, so the economy really is limping. It's just narrowly avoided going into a recession. It'll probably come through with a half a percent growth this year, which, which again, if you, if you consider that this is a, a very young developing economy with a fast growing population, that really is not good enough. Over the next year or two, it'll be lucky to, to eke out 2%. And really, this is an economy that, if you looked at its fundamentals, ought to be growing by at least 3 and probably 5% a year. 
And are there any bright spots within it? Well, there are certainly sort of individual indicators that, that would say the economy ought to be turning. You know, commodity prices seem to be lifting. It is still an economy that depends to an extent on agriculture. It's just come through a few years of drought due to, uh, due to the El Nino uh, weather phenomenon. That's now lifting. So on many fronts, the economy really should be doing a lot better. But it is being held back by these issues around poor governance and poor government policies. The way that would normally be resolved in a democracy is with an election. I mean, what are the, the prospects for replacing this government? So in 2019, the, the, the ANC faces re-election at a national level. What we came out of a few months ago was a municipal and, and local elections. And there was a significant shift away from the ruling party towards the opposition. The question, though, is whether the opposition will have enough momentum going into 2019 to, to extend those gains. And and I think that that really is an open question. I, uh, most people would probably still be betting uh, on the ANC returning an outright majority in a national election. And within the ANC, then, are there obvious alternatives to Mr. Zuma, whom investors might like more? Well, so, indeed, there is a huge amount of confidence right now in, in the finance minister, Praveen Gordhan. You've got uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, who is a, a well-respected deputy president. Uh, so there are clearly people within the ANC who, who markets uh, and, and business people uh, think would be competent. But, again, it is an open question as to whether they will be able to uh, take the ascendancy within the party. So Mr. Gordon might be his own answer to the problem of the lack of cohesion, collaboration and stability. <laughs> I, I, he's, he's never announced presidential aspirations, but certainly he has a firm grip on the economy as long as he uh, remains in the Treasury. Jonathan Rosenthal, Africa editor, thank you very much. But what do you think? Can South Africa's economy survive the ANC in fighting? Let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Next, Donald Trump's victory has been attributed in part to changing attitudes towards globalisation. His talk of dismantling trade deals and raising tariffs struck a chord with disillusioned Americans losing jobs to overseas workers. But are people right to feel angry about globalisation? And how has trade changed through the centuries? Our correspondent, Samaya Keynes, recently caught up with the economist Richard Baldwin. Mr Baldwin's the author of a new book, which provides a new way of thinking about these questions. In your new book, uh, The Great Convergence, you provide a new framework for thinking about globalisation and trade. And, and you've got this idea of these great unbundlings. Could you just explain that framework? Well, so if we think about what happened with going all the way back to the agricultural revolution, you know, eventually people went from being nomads to being stuck in one place. And basically the people were tied to the land because they were all growing food. And whatever production you had had to be tied to the people because it was just too expensive to buy goods that were made more than walking distance away. So we started, the world started out bundled. And when the steam revolution and Pax Britannica came along, it became possible to separate production from consumption. That was the first unbundling. We got the Industrial Revolution, we got booming trade. Now the second unbundling came in 1990 when the ICT revolution lowered the cost of communication in the same way the steam revolution lowered the cost of transportation in the 19th century. And that made it possible to separate the factories, to unbundle the factories and put things, uh, labor-intensive processes, in countries that had lower wages. So that's the second unbundling. If we could characterize old globalization and old trade as a kind of made-here-sold-there kind of process, now we're in a very different world. Absolutely. So I like to say that old globalization was a world where trade meant goods crossing borders. And as, as you mentioned, 
made here, sold there goods crossing borders. And that's the conceptualization that is dominating the debate. Now, that does happen, of course it happens, but what we have as well is factories crossing borders. So the way you should think about trade, I, I actually like the word international commerce because it's a bit broader. What you should think about a lot of this trade is it's the stuff that moved around inside British factories is now crossing borders. So the goods, services, people, intellectual property, capital, uh, all that stuff now has to move across borders in order to keep this internationalized factory working. So trade is a much more complex, much more entangled phenomena, which in the book I call the trade investment services intellectual property right nexus, nexus being the, the, the key word there. How does this new globalization change how we should think about the winners and the losers from globalization? If we go back to the idea that the old globalization was products competing with each other. So f foreign competition came into, say, for example, the United States in the form of a Japanese car. And if that Japanese car was cheap and high quality, that challenged the U.S. production, but it challenged the entire auto industry. Whereas now, since the ICT allows fragmentation of production and offshoring, the resolution of the globalization is far finer. So you can have, for example, one particular bit of U.S. air conditioning production moving down to Mexico, which may actually be good for some of the people in the same company who stay in the U.S., but bad for others. And so it's this kind of unpredictability which leads to an anxiety. Another way to say it is, no matter what sector you work in, no matter what skill you have, you can't be sure that your job won't be the next one that's either offshored or benefits from the new globalization. Over the past few weeks, quite a lot has changed in terms of the global trade landscape. Obviously, Donald Trump has been elected. His rhetoric is generally much more aggressive on, on trade barriers than Hillary's might have been. And it looks like trade deals like the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership are dead. What does that mean? I think of Trump's reaction, but I, I would put Brexit in the same thing, is people trying to use 20th century medicine to address a 21st century symptom. So the symptom of this new globalization is a sense of economic disenfranchisement, fragility, and anxiety that strikes across and is especially concentrated in rural areas and in the white working class in the United States. Now, using trade barriers to try and reverse that does not work in a world where the free flow of ideas has been important in the offshoring of production. Or another way to say that is Trump's Tariff Act of 2017 or ripping up trade agreements is like building walls inside a factory in an effort to move jobs from the end of the assembly line to the beginning of the assembly line. Now that wall may actually move a few jobs, but the primary thing is it makes the whole factory less competitive. Globalization is a problem. I, th I think we have to admit that. The rage is rational. It's the reaction which is not rational because, to use another analogy, it says as if the economy has a broken leg and they're trying to treat it with antibiotics. The broken leg being the fragility, the disenfranchisement, which is real. And the antibiotics being the tariffs which aren't getting at the source of it. So I think there's been a valid criticism of economists for not thinking through the politics of globalization properly. And that's led to a lot of confusion and surprise when things come back to bite them. How do you think that economists should think about the politics of these changes? 
So I think the, the source of the misthinking is that when you conceptualize globalization as primarily driven by more trade crossing borders, the natural solution which occurs to people like President-elect Trump is that to get rid of the globalization, you put the tariffs back up. But in my view of globalization, know-how crossing borders is what's really changed globalization and really caused the sense of anxiety in the rich countries, especially in the UK and in the US. Now the reaction to that is not to try and shut this down because basically it's impossible, but rather to set up policies, domestic policies, that ensure people will feel that they will be part of the winners of globalization no matter what job they have, no matter what skill they have. This is the classic economic argument that you should have free trade and redistributive policies because you should put the market in, in charge of efficiency and the government in charge of justice and you shouldn't try and confuse those hindering market forces in the search for justice because market forces in this particular case won't get you there. The offshoring and outsourcing will continue and you need very pointed, very precise policies which only really governments can do. Now in Trump land, the problem is he has thought about these policies and his supporters and advisors as if they were trade problems and therefore the solution is to reduce trade. But that won't work, that will backfire. It will not get the jobs back for the disenfranchised uh, middle America. It may bring back some more jobs for robots, but it won't bring back jobs for low education workers. So in essence, he's been using 20th century tools to address a 21st century challenge. What gives you most grounds for hope looking forward at the trade landscape? We're all talking about anxiety and anti-globalization in the rich countries. The other side of this has been a fantastic growth in the emerging world. Over 600 million people have risen out of poverty during this whole outsourcing and offshoring and the knowledge flows that came with it. It created a global middle class that didn't exist before. So there is great hope in the emerging world. I think it's important to view globalization as knowledge flowing across borders, not just goods flowing across borders, to understand why it's such a, a well-received thing in some of the emerging markets uh, and a bad thing in the G7 countries. The hopeful thing is that the world is getting richer as a whole, and what we need to do is make sure that the policies are in place in the G7 countries so we can ma maintain a political constituency in favor of continuing in openness. That was Richard Baldwin speaking to Samir Keynes. Finally now, when you hear the word golf, you may think of the lush fairways of Florida, perhaps Scotland. Asia has a love for the game too, most famously in Japan. But there, as elsewhere in the world, golf is in something of a decline. On the line now is Stephanie Studer, who covers business in Japan. Stephanie, one would have thought that if anywhere in the world was going to buck this trend, it would be Japan. It's full of elderly people who love golf and have money. Simon, you're right. Um, and it is incredibly popular still among an older generation, many of whom played it in their 40s and 50s when they were in business. And the reason that golf was so popular in the 1980s and 90s is because um, you had this mass of, of businessmen who were playing it as a way to entertain clients and colleagues. Indeed, I, I recall that there was a time when golf club memberships were, were traded like, like high-value bonds. Yes, exactly. Um, some of them would fetch even up to a few million dollars. So they were really seen as 
investments. And this was a time when a lot of golf courses were being built. And still today, there's a real oversupply in the country. If you imagine that Japan accounts for half of all of Asia's golf facilities. And what's gone wrong? Are young people not taking up the sport now? That is um, one big problem. Participation in golf has dropped by over 40% since its highs in the 1990s. I think that it also has a bit of an image problem because the corporate uh, entertainment type of golf was so popular a few decades ago. I think the young now tend to shy away from something that's seen as a little bit stuffy and of a different era. But some courses are trying to change that and trying to attract uh, some young people to play as well. What sort of methods are they adopting? Well, one that I visited a couple of hours out of Tokyo by train is organising every year a children's day where families can come for free with their children. So they really want to sort of start them off uh, as young as possible. And that club also is promoting golf through a Japanese comic book, uh, which is set at the club and about a, a young a uh, worker at the club who becomes a, a famous international golfer at a young age. And others are trying to make the game shorter. So rather than playing the traditional 18-hole uh, game, they're offering shorter courses, uh, nine holes or, or even less, and even a play-by-hole system. But there must still be, from what you say, an enormous oversupply of golf courses. What's being done with all that open space? Well, some of them in the last few years have actually been converted into solar panel plants because the government has started offering subsidies for different types of energy. So that's encouraged some to to sell the land. A few have been converted back to farmland as well. Stephanie Studer, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>